0: You're listening to World Oil Deep Dive, conversations with energy industry leaders and engineers about the market trends and technologies shaping the oil and gas industry. Now, here's this week's episode.
1: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I'm Jim Watkins, and uh, we're here today with some uh, very interesting guests to talk about flow assurance in the Deepwater Gulf of Mexico. So uh, first, let me introduce uh, Ashley Hunt. You're the marketing director.
2: Yeah, that's Clarient, right. Jim. Marketing yeah, for, director. Yeah. Good.
1: I got that right. Yes. I got that yes, right. Yes. Okay. Good. So so tell us uh, before we get on to Rocky, tell us a little bit about your your background and how you came to be
2: at Clariant. Well, thanks, Jim. Uh, yeah, as as you said, my name is Ashley Hunt, and I am the head of marketing and wholesale chemicals for Clariant. And I currently reside in Louisiana now, and have spent the last um, right at 18 years in the upstream production chemical space. So, working um, on multiple locations across uh, North America, from the the top of the world North Slope to the Gulf of Mexico uh, deep water. So. Um, have some experience and bring some um, knowledge from the Gulf of Mexico over the last several years in both flow assurance and just production chemistry in general.
1: Nice, nice. I know you're going to have a lot of interesting points to bring up. And also we have with us Rocky Robbins, uh, the Director of Portfolio Management at Quarter North Energy. Rocky, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks so much. Yeah, no, uh, my background is uh,
0: pretty... Pretty boring as far as an uh, uh, engineer from the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, graduated in uh, 2005. Uh, uh, went to an independent oil company. I ended up in the Gulf about 10 years ago and uh, then landed at a company uh, called uh, Quarter North. And I've been involved in operations and any number of jobs over those 15 years, but now find myself in the business development side. So uh, I've learned, uh, I think, all the facets of this business and I continue to learn more.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Now, tell us, uh, for the folks who don't know Quarter North, which I didn't really prior to us meeting them for the first time. But tell us a little bit about Quarter North and, and uh, you know, where you guys produce.
0: Yeah, Sure. No. Uh, so Quarter North is a new company. Uh, we produce solely from the, the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, even though we are a new company, we do produce. Uh, we run the larger independents in the Gulf of Mexico. We produce uh, over 50,000 barrels a day from about a dozen assets and when we talk about uh, the Gulf of Mexico, our, our focus is really the deep water Gulf of Mexico. And so that's kind of the area in Mississippi Canyon, Green Canyon. And uh, and we are, are definitely a, a player in the, the E&P space in this area. We don't focus in any other area in the globe. We we are the Gulf of Mexico, and and that's uh, that's our
1: focus. That's awesome. So you are a Gulf of Mexico expert then, right? Yeah. So So yeah, I, I, tell I us. Know. Tell us, before we jump into uh, some some details about that, tell us about the importance of the Gulf of Mexico overall, you know, for U.S. production.
0: Oh, man, I could talk about this for for a long time. (laughs) You know, the Gulf um, is such an important source of of oil and not just oil, but like talent and resources and uh, technology. And um, I think in, in the world of economics, we tend to call these lead markets. And so it's typically where your best performers, your best technologies all get implemented. And we see it here in the Gulf. And the Gulf has been producing for almost uh, 100 years. And even though we produce in, from 100 years over kind of a 300-mile um, uh, distance, all that production within that, that small area, we still got a lot more barrels to produce. And so um, as far as regulatory as far as technology, as far as the uh, people that are that are in the oil field, this is the best place to work. And so it, it, it really drives, I think, part of the American um, uh, engine. And uh, I think it, it definitely funds the, the, the Southern states and, and drives the, the innovation that we see.
1: Yeah. And like you were saying, I mean, it's a place where like the best technologies get implemented and things. And, uh, you know, because it is prolific and people have been producing a long time, anything that we can do as an industry to squeeze more out of that is a good thing. And that's what we're here to talk about today, basically. Right. Flow assurance uh, from the chemical side. So um, let's 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 jump into that a little bit here. You know the ESG and the sustainability. I mean, you can't just dump whatever you want into the Gulf of Mexico, right? People, people don't like that. Uh, The regulators don't like that. So, um, what are we doing as an industry to kind of come together and and make more sustainable chemicals to help with production?
2: Appreciate you bringing that up. So, from a sustainability perspective, you know, from and from chemicals, we are continuing to listen to our customers, and we continue to advance and make advancements in chemistry. So not only just um, more sustainable products from solvent perspective, right from the molecular perspective, but also from the process safety perspective. So we are continuing to try to um, densify that and make the chemicals more concentrated. And so that not only helps in all aspects from um, shipping and the volumes in general but also from a process safety perspective right taking into account people and crane lifts and everything else so we're looking at sustainability from um a full view right and speaking with customers and operators and trying to understand and work this together
0: interested in all things oil and gas we've got a podcast for you the energy pipeline Join us each week as we cover the latest trends, transformations, and success stories alongside various key figures from the world's leading energy companies and beyond. Listen to The Energy Pipeline wherever you stream your podcasts or visit cat.com slash pipeline.
1: That's interesting because when I think of ESG, and, and I should never be surprised at this because it always comes up in conversations, there's all these areas like you're saying if you can if you can make the chemicals more concentrated if you can uh send them i don't know in a a powdered form instead of liquid all of that cuts down on all of the ancillary esg uh issues right Right. i mean the shipping uh you know the the amount of uh containers that got to go out all the time all of those things so that's that's interesting i'm sure we'll get more into that but so tell us uh you, you mentioned that you know, always innovating, always trying to find new ways, working with your customers. So, so what are some of the latest innovations?
2: If we're speaking on sustainability, we've we've launched just recently Phase Treat Wet, um, which is a more sustainable and environmentally acceptable uh, demulsification program. Right. So, um, we really like to focus on um, like our D three program. And so that's what we've been focused on recently. And that's just the decarb, densify, and then detox. And so I mentioned a little bit about the detoxification of chemicals, which is very important, right? There's regulatory requirements for sure, but but then we're trying to implement you know, and look towards the future, right? Not just apply regulatory requirements. Um, and then, as I mentioned, there's the densification aspect as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Rocky, let me pick your brain here for a second. Um, tell us what are some of the the challenges in deepwater Gulf of Mexico uh, with chemicals and and flow assurance? Yeah, I think um,
0: the just I think it's, it comes down to the nature of the business. You know, uh, when you compare us to the onshore business, it's just there's going to be different um, challenges because of how we run our business. So. Uh, and, and it really c- concentrates around the fact that our wells, our flow lines, our, our subsea systems are largely inaccessible. And because of that fact, uh, if there is some kind of floor assurance anomaly or some kind of plug, you know, the impact that that has to um, uh, your, your business um, and the viability of that production system is uh, is vastly different and it, it's com- it's compromised and so that that fact that that these systems are inaccessible or not ex- accessible easily uh, it really changes the equation and it requires you to then uh, mitigate that with a number of tactics which you've got to input redundancies you've got to lean a lot heavier on the science and technology around your chemicals and chemical program um, and, and all of those things have to kind of work together to amplify what, what I like to call is the operating window uh, for your flow system. And, and I think that that really then, then leads to uh, broader um, discussions. And I think the fact that that is so critical to our businesses, to, to what Ashley, Ashley was saying, is why there's such a focus on uh, improving our chemicals, our, our chemical uh, efficacy and our chemical sustainability. Uh, if we had two chemicals. And one is just as effective as the other, but this uh, the one is more sustainable than the other. We're going to go with the one that's more sustainable because that's something that's changed over the last few years. That is some ad that we have as an industry that is a requirement now as we as we build those systems. And so as as I think about the challenges of of the deep water uh, environment, and not only are you um, having to deal with these fluids, these fluids you have in other uh, onshore wells uh, locations in the world, you know you've got fluids that precipitate solids, you've got fluids that cause hydrates, you've got fluids that cause corrosion, and we've got those same fluids. But because of our delivery systems, uh, we're required, and because we can't get to the access these systems, um, we're, we're required to put uh, a lot more effort into those those chemical programs. Um, Another trend uh, that we're seeing in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's really not a, a new trend; it's one that's been happening over the last ten to fifteen years, is this uh, the, the tiebacks that that are going back to hosts. And what we're seeing is that uh, three quarters of the wells that are getting drilled now, uh, whether exploration, development, they're they're time back. The, the the host is already known before they hit till death. And so um, beyond that, here's another stat for you: the you know 75 percent or but three quarters also of the operators that are drilling those wells are going to tie back to their own facility wow um so these are you know these are dynamics that are, are playing into this tieback philosophy but what they're doing is they're tying back into existing systems that might not have been optimally designed for the new fields they're finding and so that's going to be oh, a big challenge and that's one we're facing right now and then you know the, on top of all of that, you've got the, 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 the fluids that we produce. You've got the systems that are inaccessible. You've got the, the systems that may not be fit for purpose. On top of that, you've got these things we call hurricanes, which are these <laughs> random anomalies that we come across that cause fluid to sit in pipes for a long period of time. And our fluids don't like to sit in pipes for a long extended period of time. And so when, when we had Ida a few years ago, it really humbled a lot of us operators because we thought we had good flow assurance programs. But what happens is that as you produce a reservoir, those fluid characteristics change. And if you aren't always updating your flow assurance program, you are going to find yourself in trouble and it's something like IDA comes along and we did. And so uh, we 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 are comfortable with this environment, but sometimes it humbles us and it just takes one time to have to deal with a hydrate event that causes you to not want to do that ever again. Those those challenges I think are very uh, unique to the to the Gulf of Mexico um, specifically, and they all they all they all again speak to why we spend as much time and money and effort on our chemical programs.
1: Yeah, excellent. Hey, I got a I got a quick question on that. Then, so if this monitoring, especially with the tiebacks, right, coming into old systems, you know, uh, different parts of fields coming in or new fields coming into old systems, how um, how is that is that monitored? I mean, is that something that you guys have sensors in and you can just like adjust things on the fly as, as the conditions change? That's a great question. It really comes down to
0: how is that original system designed and how expandable is it, right? These systems that are built on the Gulf, they're often designed to handle multiple wells, but are they designed to handle your new well is, is what it comes down to. And your new well may be 5,000 feet deeper. It might require additional uh, uh, injection points for chemicals. And, oh, wow. and all that has to be accessible with your operating window. And so the the, bit, the first thing you want to do, though, is you're testing to make sure that the reservoirs are compatible when they flow together. And that's where another challenge shows up is because, you know, we get to drill the well, but sometimes we don't get all the samples we want. Right. And so there's always a surprise or two when you bring on a new well and see how it behaves with your existing s- flow line system or even your existing platform um, system uh, for those fluids.
1: So, Ashley, tell me then, with, with all that in mind about the changing environment, really, as you tie back in other wells and things like that, how how does Clariant work with clients? I mean, does that have to be done like in days or months? I mean, I, explain to us that process a little bit about how you collaborate with a client to make sure that that their chemical programs for flow assurance are optimized.
2: Absolutely, thanks in a perfect, there's the perfect world scenario, right, where we have all of these samples plenty ahead of time, and we're able to test and determine um, which chemical would be preferred for this system. So, we can do that depending on the samples that are readily available. And we work with the operators um, sometimes years in advance, right? Depending on the project years. or the wow. scope of the project, right? Uh, and determine their high treat treatment, their LDH high treatment, right? Their corrosion scale, what's needed from a flow assurance perspective. So that's oftentimes spec in. Sometimes now, uh, the timeline is getting a little bit quicker as it's just a subsea tieback, right? And we do as much as we can up front. But when it comes to phase separation, as Rocky mentioned, as they turn on the well and we're seeing these new fluids, I mean, being on the platform, being there and present and sampling and determining the rates on the spot on the fly is is really what you have to do oftentimes when it comes to breaking out the fluids from a water and oil perspective, Right. So there's some accommodations that have to happen real time. Uh, and then there's some that can happen more in advance, especially from an engineering perspective on umbilical slots. Right. Rocky mentioned um, as the wells are um, more tiebacks are coming online as the tiebacks are further and further away from the host platform. This has to be considered. Right. And we're having to look at more combination chemicals, right? So prior there was a corrosion inhibitor and a scale inhibitor, and they would both have an umbilical uh, slot for the chemical. But but now we're seeing more and more the the need to combine, right? Um, and so that's mm-hmm. been an innovation challenge: is how to make sure uh, chemicals like CI and SI are combined uh, stable for. Uh, deep water conditions and umbilical conditions, right? Are, um CI and LDHI, right? So some of the advancements is is more along those lines as well.
1: In- interesting. That that's something that I hadn't thought of. Having to combine those chemicals and and to get them down a hole. I mean, that's not always a an obvious thing. Is hey, yeah. let's just throw them together and pump them down there. It doesn't work that way, right? So not all the time no.
2: with chemicals, right? You <laughs> definitely don't want it gelled, you know, ten miles away.
1: Exactly. Um, and there's really
2: no accessibility so absolutely Jim
1: Yeah. So um, tell us then Rocky or Ashley whoever whoever this would go to best so these uh, high pressure high temperature conditions that you find are there you know particular challenges with that? I mean the deeper you go, the more you have to deal with that, right?
2: I can speak um, just from the chemical side, and then Rocky, you can speak um, from your experience as well. Just from HTHP, it really begins in the laboratory testing, right? And so Mm. some of that is still uh, in innovation, right? But working with the operator and understanding what their thresholds are for both temperature and pressure, and developing chemistries that can be mainly stable, right? Stable right. and uh, under those conditions. Um, and obviously at the end of the day, they have to perform. So for us, it starts in the laboratory and with our flow assurance and our some of our innovation teams. Rocky?
0: You, you really spoke to like the challenges on the chemical side. I, I think about the, all the challenges, you know, I'm, I'm sure that question was asked a bunch when we were going from 10K to 15K systems. And now we're having that question a lot as we go from 15, as we, we stretch 15 and yep. go to, to 20K. 20. And mm-hmm. and it, for me, at least, as I look at it, the higher the pressure, the higher the temperature, the more outside, the farther that's away from your normal, um, what, what is the norm? the less comfortable you are with that operating window, the less comfortable you, you are with those controls. And then it's just like anything else, as we spend more time in that space, we're gonna get more comfortable, we're gonna build more of these controls and then really work that operating window. We recently brought on a well, uh, we call cap My West, brought on that over the summertime. It's one of the higher pressure wells in the Gulf of Mexico. It's, um, you know, they've got a couple 20K wells showing up in the next year or two, but this is probably one of the higher ones that are there right now. As I talked about before, this is the same case we've been mentioning. This is a well that ties into an existing subsea system. It's a very, very high pressure well. The bottom of pressure is at 21,000 pounds. Uh, the, The temperature is in the 250 Fahrenheit range, but it ties into an existing system and it ties back 25 miles away to a 20 year old platform. All right. and so, well, the, the system that it ties into, that system was designed for the field that, is, that was originally producing, and that's also a high-pressure field, but it produces from a different reservoir, so you've got the compatibility issues that, that Ashley's kind of speaking to, but you've got to now bring that well into a system that can accept it. And from 25 miles away, uh, it causes you to have um, have to make uh, compromises. And the compromises, what I mean by that is, you know, if your bottom pressure is 21,000 pounds, that means you have to exceed that pressure to inject any chemicals downhole, right? And that injection pressure is coming from your platform. 25 miles away, you know, those fluids can be viscous, the the chemicals that we pump, they've got viscosity. And so as it travels along that 25 mile umbilical, all the way to that well, it's losing pressure. And so uh, in the case of Katmai, we are not using the optimal um, uh, chemicals in a few cases, uh, because we can't get them to to the bottom hole. All right, it won't reach it, it's too much pressure. And so this is what I talk about that operating window, you're starting to shrink what you're operating where you're starting to have to deal with the consequences of not run, of not having the ideal, uh, chemical in your well. And, and then, and then you start to make, uh, you start to make other changes, right? You start to take some of the spare lines in your umbilical and start to use them for different reasons, right? And this is what the, the HPHT world is, I think going to look like as we bring on new wells into these existing systems, we're going to have to figure out how to get them to do the most with the, the last thing I'll say on it is if you lose a tube, uh, an umbilical tube, or you lose a downhole tube. You can just imagine the cascading impacts that has on the entire system, right. and and that's the I think the the challenge that we've seen on the 10k side, that we've seen on the 15k side, that we'll see on the 20k side. Which uh, mm-hmm. which I'm I'm kind of curious how the the industry is going to react to that.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I wonder if that's the limit to kind of like I guess what's called. Uh, what is that near field exploration right i mean you i mean once you start getting 25 miles away and you're trying to do everything from a 25 mile distance the level of complexity goes up and then you put the higher pressures on top of that i mean there has to be some limit to how much you can work those tiebacks right what what what's the longest one that you know of rocky is 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 the longest tieback we have in the in the gulf or is it somewhere else in the world Oh, I wish I, I should know that
0: answer. Um, I know we start to get uncomfortable around the 35 mile range there. You know, if you can manage your flow assurance, you really can go as far as you want. The problem becomes costs. It just becomes so economically infeasible right. to, to have all that pipe, to run that umbilical, to be that far away, to, to carry all those risks on that slow line that it, it really doesn't make much sense to go much beyond 35 miles. But I'm, I'm not aware of a lot of fields that do that. 25 is pretty far. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. 25 is really far. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I guess there's a, I mean, you know, that's why there's financial guys, right. To figure out like, does it make more sense to run 35 miles or should we just put a new platform out there and and deal with it that way? Right. So, yeah. Which
2: is why, which is why some of the flow assurance studies have been so far in advanced, right. Um, because some of what's needed is going to determine the answer to that, right? From not only a technology perspective, but from a cost perspective.
1: Right. And how how close is that, uh, Ashley? When you're doing those studies, right? So you got some samples from that hole that was drilled 25 mm-hmm. miles away, and you're trying to put it together economically uh for somebody, it would seem to me that at best it's a it's a good guess, right? You don't know until it's actually working, whether those chemicals are going to do what you tested it out to do, right? You're trying to get as close to possible to tell the person, yeah, this is this is how that's going to work. But things change too, right? I mean, you could be right at the upper yeah. limit of it and then something could change and then you're like, whoops, So I don't, yeah, I don't know.
2: exactly. Yeah, the risk the risk are high, I mean, um, especially in the flow assurance aspect. Um, and you mentioned samples. Uh, sometimes there are samples, right? And sometimes, uh, sometimes it's modeling, right? Especially from a feasibility oh, wow. Yeah, feasibility study and feasibility perspective. Um, sometimes it's it's looking at all the conditions and having to model and, and make some decisions, right? Make some risk-based decisions based on that information.
1: Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. That's fascinating. And I guess that's why it's important for an operator like Rocky and your crew to get and and have partners who you can work with that whole time right when the feasibility studies are going on every every operator must do that right i mean they have to do these feasibility studies they have to do this but being partnered up early on just means that you know you'll be able to deal with changes and you and people will already understand what's happening down there as much as you know they've seen already right so they can make changes on the fly right ashley so like clarion if if a programs operating a certain way with certain chemicals and then some things change that's a less of a leap for you guys to adjust that than it is to bring in somebody and just throw a bunch of data at them yeah. and say hey look something's wrong right
2: yeah for sure for sure it's less of a risk top sides right as far as separation phase separation um it it's a little bit more complicated as it relates to subsea right and then you have 25 miles of uh, umbilical filled with a certain chemical right so So the options to just switch subsea chemicals doesn't happen quite as quickly. Right. (laughs) Um, And so that's why there's just a lot of collaboration, uh, not only with um, everyone aboard at the operators, the chemical company and everyone to really make sure that we're not only injecting the right amount uh, for what we're trying to achieve, but also we're injecting the right product.
1: Yeah. Well, here's a question for you. So, uh, I mean, obviously there's, there's, challenges as we try to make things more ESG friendly, right? So Rocky, what are some of those uh, that you've seen? You mentioned earlier that, hey, if we got two chemicals do the same thing, we're always going to pick the one that's better ESG, but are what are the drawbacks or difficulties uh, going that way?
0: yeah know I think uh, I think Ashley was speaking to it a little bit is you know if by going more sustainable are you compromising you know effectiveness or even costs and and all those things but but what I like is that sustainability is now one of those pillars that you have to weigh um, going forward. and I, I don't I, I see that becoming more likely. I mean, we haven't we've talked a lot about the operational risks, but I think you know we're, we're seeing you know regulatory, a risk as well in our business is i think the the lease sale and the postponement of that lease sale is a, a big you know signal of that but uh, and the other one is the the inflation reduction act it, inside that the RRA right. you know has provisions in it that where you know we as operators will for the first time be fined by the federal government for our ghg emissions, right wow and so that's something that's starting in 2024 and so the, i'm not saying that that's not a not a good or a necessary thing you know to to to, to move forward. But um, I, I think you're going to have either operators and, and service providers and vendors and, and that that either resists that change or they're going to move forward with it. And I think the latter are going to be more successful. Um, and, and I think the chemical side is a, is a big one because since it is the lifeblood of our business and it's an easy one to point to, it's one that, that interacts with the environment. It's the one that's, that's got a big target on it. And and that's why it's it, it gets the attention from all of us that it deserves.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess as the regulations mount and things like fines kick in, it gets harder and harder to resist that, right? I mean, the option uh, for an operator being an independent or a large operator, just, you know, do we just suck it up and pay the fines or, you know, do we really take care of this, right? That's
0: right. And I think that uh, they're only going to get more strict. And, and, you know, we are stewards of our environment as well. And uh, we... We care about you know the, that we're doing as much as we, we possibly can to provide the least amount of damage and the most sustainable options so that it, i think it all fits together i think the, the things that i worry about is that you know we're still in the early part of this esg moment and uh we're still quantifying what good looks like and i do worry that you know we we may not be using the right you know for lack of a better word kpis and, and i see that on, on the emissions side where you know, i saw an article where you know i think uh, they were they were beating on the shelf assets in the gulf and they were saying that hey, they didn't have you know, three four x the carbon emissions per barrel right well because they mm-hmm. produce very few barrels but all the while they only produce the 2000 or so platforms only produce like 35 percent of the emissions and <laughs> and it's the 50 to 60 deep water facilities and those operations that provide 65 percent of the emissions and so if you're running a viable you know emissions reduction program who are you really going to target and and it's really my my drive is that hey, let's not take assets out of the Gulf prematurely. The value of the Gulf is, is the efficiency, the sustainability, the ability to use infrastructure, the, the ability to turn a thousand barrel facilities into twenty thousand barrel facilities with the right location discovery. And I think that's that's where we worry about with where we are in the early phases of ESG. Of yeah,
1: it's it's interesting because you would think I mean with everything that's going on in the world right now that you'd be trying to maximize and make sure that we're maximizing the resources we do have at our disposal right and yet sometimes the the regulations and stuff seem a, a, a little bizarre and it's weird because the the regulatory agencies you know that are overseeing our business these guys should know what they're doing right is it an energy policy issue or is it a is it just like The regulators not understanding the business enough. I mean, what do you think causes those strange things?
2: Yeah, I think when we speak about ESG, I think it's just the industry in general has a really great grasp on the environmental and the social aspect, especially in the oil and gas industry, right, all over the world. And and in this case, as we speak about deep water, right, we know um, the environmental challenges and um, we are ready for those. Um social challenges all around the world, the oil and gas companies have taken the lead in many cases
1: for sure. I mean, nobody has a more vested interest in making sure that our business is sustainable than we do, right? Because we want to keep producing, we want to keep producing the energy and uh, you know we just want people to basically to stay out of the way while we do it so hey uh, let's let's land this thing now, rocky, I'll, I'll start with you. How do you see the the future? of deep water Gulf of Mexico, what's the, what's the future look like there? I've been in
0: operations for 15 years. In the last couple of years, I've been business development, just focused on the Gulf of Mexico. And all that said, I I really don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I think you only need to look at the, the three, the third quarter earnings that we just heard to kind of see that, that you see a lot of companies that are, are doing very well, but have this perception that, you know, when is the next crash? What should my strategy be? You got a, com- a bunch of companies that backed away uh, during COVID uh, towards the transition. And now you see those companies kind of doing the moonwalk uh, back towards trying right. to catch back up to the companies that that, that stuck with it. And so I, my sense is that in the long term, obviously, you know, the this is a, a finite resource. We, we say all those things. There's. Um, There's pressures, the regulatory, um, uh, environmentally against the industry. But in the short term, this is a very dynamic business. And those that go back to the regulatory comment, those that embrace that change are going to do very well, I think. And I think that's the case of the Gulf. The Gulf's been around for 100 years. It could be around for another 100 years if we allow it.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for that, uh, Rocky. Ashley, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, What do you think uh, the future looks like for um, deep water Gulf of Mexico?
2: Uh, Jim, I really am optimistic. Honestly, I think the future is bright for oil and gas uh, in general, but especially for the Gulf of Mexico, for the Gulf Coast, for the state of Louisiana. Um, I am excited to hear about people that are interested in um, our industry. Right. And so I think in general a lot of what's been said recently is that oil and gas really aren't going away anytime soon
1: That's right for sure. and
2: so that makes all of us in this industry proud to work in oil and gas uh, and proud of what we do and what we bring to the world every day to meet you know um, global energy needs
1: yeah for sure well rocky ashley thank you so much for being on the show today it was a great conversation and uh, look forward to hearing back from you in the in the future you know when we get some of these uh, great case studies about these super long tiebacks and the challenges with those those are those are the type of thing our readers at world oil love to hear about so definitely you know submit some articles get that in the magazine and uh, then we'll have everybody uh, reading your information as well Thanks, thanks for being on today. We really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us about Flow Assurance you know, in Deepwater Gulf of Mexico. It, it was a fantastic conversation. Thanks a lot, guys.
2: Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Rocky. Thanks,
1: Jim.
0: Thanks for tuning into our show. Please check out the show notes for the links we discussed in the podcast. We value your opinions. So if you have any questions or comments, kindly email them to us at deepdive@worldoil.com. Additionally, we'd appreciate it if you could rate us on your preferred podcast listening app. Lastly, don't forget to visit worldoil.com for the latest technical articles and news about the oil and gas industry.